We just sang a song that ought to be the theme of every Christian's life and is in fact what the author of Hebrews is urging upon his readers that they would surrender all. They are in a very difficult circumstance. The author, as we will find from in, when we read the close of the letter, he's writing from Italy to a congregation probably in North Africa, principally Jewish people who have come to faith in Christ, and they have been loyal. They have paid a price, and they've been persistent. They've been disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ for a long time, but they have paid a very high price, and as he will say later in this letter, their hands are hanging down, their knees have become weak, and the reason that has happened is they've taken their eyes off of Jesus and put their eyes on their circumstances. They put their eyes on their persecutors. They've, they've put their eyes on their pain, and they need to, and what he's urging them to do is put their eyes back on Jesus. Because if they put their eyes back on Jesus, the Son, the Son the Son, and I'm using them, repeating that word over and over again because he does. Formerly, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. Today, he has spoken to us, this is chapter one, by Son, a whole more, much more powerful, clear. Did Moses do a good job? Moses did a good job. Did Elijah do a good job? Elijah did a good job. Did Jeremiah do a good job? Yes, he did. Did Isaiah do a good job? Yes, he did. But now we've got sun. And he puts them in the shade. Could they be faulted? No. But we've got the most unrestrained revelation of the person of God via Jesus of Nazareth, the Son the sun and the cult that is attracting these people Jewish background people who have come to faith in Christ this is a Jewish cult that actually elevates angels and so then the author goes on and says angels angels you've got to be kidding me the angels are your servants worship angel by the way all paganism is angel worship they're fallen angels you are to worship the Son. You are to worship the Father. You are to worship the Holy Spirit. You are to worship the triune God. Why would you forfeit the best for that? Because they've been distracted by their pain. By their pain. The resolution is that they fix their eyes on Jesus again. Now, one of the things that he emphasizes is the concept of rest, of rest. As Israel came out of Egypt, they were promised the rest of the land of Canaan. This was the fulfillment of the promise to the fathers. I will lead you to the land of Canaan. This will be a land of, of rest, of respite, respite for you. Respite for you, get the pronunciation correct. 
They also had the seventh day Sabbath, which was designed to train them in the same way. And this is part of the Ten Commandments. You were to separate, keep the Sabbath holy because your God created in six days, six 24-hour days, and on the seventh day, he rested. That doesn't mean he slung a hammock between two trees and, and slept because he was tired out. No, nothing. This is the creation, the entire physical creation is called God's finger work. It was no more effort for him than when you were finger painting in kindergarten. <laughs> but it means he sat back and enjoyed what he had created. So we have the Sabbath God who's given us a seventh day rest to remind us of his power and to enable us to join him in that resting, that time of rest and restoration and they would meet together for family worship. The synagogue wasn't invented till many centuries later. They would have family worship, a day of rest. So they got the rest of the seventh day. They've got the rest of Canaan. And what did the Jewish people do? He came out from Egypt under Moses. They rebelled and rebelled. These are the people who saw more miracles from God before the career of the Lord Jesus and all the things witnessed by the apostles, nobody saw more miracles than that generation. They saw it. The 10 plagues in Egypt that completely turned the most powerful, wealthy nation on the planet into a trash dump. They went through between the walls of water at the Red Sea. They had, by the way, been energized with divine energy to get it from Egypt that far. They went day and night. The Egyptian army had to charge really hard to catch up with these people on foot with their chariots. And then they turned around, having gone between the walls of water, they turned around and watched those walls of water collapse on the Egyptian army, on Pharaoh and his army. And they immediately started rebelling. First they said when they got to Red Sea, Moses, why have you brought us here? We've got Pharaoh's first about to slaughter us. And then they get through the Red Sea. Oh, we don't have water we can drink. And God commands Moses, cast the tree into the bitter water, and it became sweet. And I mean, every opportunity they had to rebel, they rebelled. And after two years in the wilderness, he brings them to the southern part of the promised land, Kadesh Barnea, and they choose not to go in. These people who had seen the mighty power of God destroy Egypt are now being told, I will go with you as you go in and conquer these various Canaanite kingdoms. Let me tell you, those Canaanite kingdoms didn't hold a candle to Egypt. They had already seen Egypt destroyed. They don't think the God who destroyed Egypt can walk them through victory there. No, they didn't. And so they got to spend, and besides that, we will go in there and our children will be slaughtered. Okay, well, I'm going to make you wander around for 38 more years in the wilderness so that you can all die off and the children whom you are so afraid of will be the ones who go in and conquer. And that's what happened. But every opportunity they had to not trust, they took that opportunity. The Sabbath of all these Sabbaths, all the rest, the rest of God's promises. And that is what he points us to here. Let me go back to chapter 3, verse, uh, verses 7 through 11, which is a quotation from Psalm 95. And in that psalm, the psalmist reflects back on 
what had happened hundreds of years before with the people under. So this is Hebrews 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, quoting Psalm 95, today, which was written hundreds of years after the Joshua, the Exodus events, today, if you will hear his voice, <clears throat> do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. What was that rest there? The land of Canaan. What is the rest that awaits the, these people who are being persecuted? The rest, the protection, the provision we can have from our God now. And he says in chapter 3, verse 12, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief, replicating that of your forefathers, and departing from the living God. But exhort, encourage one another daily, while it is called today, Psalm 95, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin always and rebellion always have an, has an element of deception. Those people that came out of Egypt, what did they lack as far as a proof or evidence from God of his, his, God's loyalty, God's power, God's wisdom? They lacked nothing but they chose to ignore the proofs. And he's saying to his readers, don't be like your forefathers. Chapter four, verse one. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest. Now, he's taking, this author is taking that word rest. That word in the context there in Psalm 95, initially referenced the land of Canaan rest but it also referenced the rest that we can have in his promises. What happens to us in the midst of our trials when we, followers of Christ, open his word, engage with his word, and here is a promise that fits our problem like the, a glove on a hand. We carry that promise to God and we find rest but your problem hasn't gone away oh but I have rest in the midst of the problem I find rest but he also uses rest this author does of that coming kingdom when we will step into his kingdom glory in the same way that Israel coming out of Egypt was promised the Canaan glory so we have been promised kingdom, glory, rest. And so he says to us in 4.1, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. When we step into the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, we don't want to have come short. 
We want to be able to look back, reflect back on our life experiences, say, when I was tested, I trusted. When I was tested, I trusted. When I was tested, I trusted. And so what will Jesus do? And Paul talks about this in both First and Second Corinthians. He talks about the judgment seat of Christ, which is a judgment for reward. Well done, you good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. God is looking for every excuse he can find to pour kingdom glory on us in that day to come. By the way, when that kingdom comes, it's here forever. It's here forever. Therefore, fear lest you drop the ball and receive less kingdom glory than otherwise you could. Your test isn't designed by God to destroy you. It is designed by God to, as you respond properly, it brings you strength. You know, there are some actually insane people that go into these places where they have weights and they lift weights and they do it on purpose and they don't have to. Why do they do that? Because on the other side of that weightlifting and that stationary bicycle riding or whatever it else they're doing there is the promise of increased strength and capacity and so they put themselves on purpose through a test with that prospect in mind well god puts us through tests because he has a prospect for us called kingdom glory and he wants us he wants to maximize it in our life experience uh, but let me tell you, God never tells us a test isn't a test. A test is a test is a test is a test. He never minimizes our pain. He never does that. But what he tells us is, I have a salve for that pain. And here it is. Listen to me and receive the salve. Receive the ointment. Receive the medication. It is from my Holy Spirit through my word, and I will be present with you. That's why we hear so many wonderful accounts about our brothers and sisters overseas who are literally just heard this, and I've mentioned this already here before. Our brothers and sisters in Iran who have come to faith in Christ, they literally, the mullahs there, have opened the prison doors and said, all you have to do to walk out of here is deny Jesus, and you can walk out right now. And they're saying, no. We choose to stay and endure the test rather than be disloyal to Jesus. And Jesus is present with them in those cells. They're being strengthened. They are resting in his promise and his presence. And they are being strengthened to do what otherwise they could not do. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, of receiving that that promise of his presence and also that promise of coming kingdom glory let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it for indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them those who came out of Egypt but the word which they heard did not profit them not being mixed with faith in those who heard it you have to take the word and say God said it I believe it that settles it. I did not invent that. I wish I could say I did. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. And move forward. 
the people that came out of Egypt, most of them didn't. There were a couple of Joshua, Caleb did. For we who have believed do enter that rest. What do we bring to the table? Faith. Childlike faith. As he said, so I swore in my wrath, those who didn't believe, they shall not enter my rest. So what happens if you do believe? You do enter. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, though the works, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. God has already got a kingdom set in place for you. It's not a prospect of something he's going to create. No, it's in place, ready for us to walk into it. We can be in his presence right now. That's one of the things I love about Richard Wormbrand's testimony about when he was in a Romanian prison. This is in the, in the late 40s all the way through the 50s. This guy for 14 years or so sat in a Romanian dungeon because of his loyalty for, to Jesus. And he said, literally, there were occasions where the wall would just start to move and Jesus would step out and be with us in the cells. And there were Romanian guards who witnessed this looking through the, the door windows in the doors. And they unlocked the doors, stepped in, threw their arms outside, their firearms, ripped off their insignias, threw them out, closed the door, reached through the window, locked the door, and threw the keys in the hall. They put themselves in prison with us so they could too be in the presence of Jesus. What's he saying? This is what awaits you, my brothers, my sisters, his rest. Verse 4, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day, the seventh day Sabbath in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, Psalm, from Psalm 95, they shall not enter my rest. So there's the rest of Canaan, there's the rest of the seventh day, but those are all representative of the rest of kingdom glory. The kingdom glory that is awaiting us, but also the kingdom glory that we can experience right now. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, Psalm 95, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter in, did not enter because of disobedience, which is just another way of saying unbelief. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, the author of the psalm, today. David is writing this like 400 years later to himself and his own generation. Today, after such a long time as it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Don't choose unbelief. Don't say to God, oh, Lord, you don't know what it's like. Do we still have that graphic in the, of, of, the, of Jesus talking to the, uh, from the Passion of the Christ? Okay. Darren would have to look it up. Okay, we'll get that up there next week. Yes, Jesus has been there. He's been there 
far more deeply than any of us ever will. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not afterward have spoken of another day. Verse 9, Therefore, there, re there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest, the, the rest that God provides, has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. What's God saying? What is, what is human religion? Human religion is all about human effort. Work, 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 work. Try, 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 try. Sweat, 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 sweat. God says, stop it. My son has done it all. I want you to sit quietly, hold out an empty hand, and let me fill it. Sit quietly. And receive the blessing. Well, Lord, I've got... sit quietly and receive the blessing. Rest awaits you if you will but allow yourself to receive it. Let us, verse 11, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience, those who came out of Egypt. Be diligent. Is there effort? Oh, yeah. You've got to press forward. You've got an enemy who is screaming at you. All kinds of reasons why you shouldn't believe. Every kind of excuse. You've got to be diligent in the strength of God's Holy Spirit. You've got to push forward in His authority and His power. You've got to be diligent to press forward Therefore, be diligent to enter that rest. You be diligent, but what awaits you? Rest. Whew. Let us be diligent. Therefore, be diligent to enter that rest. Lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience as those who came out of Egypt. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So as you expose yourself to God's word, what happens? God the Holy Spirit takes his word. By the way, one of the translators said, you know, it would be better if they'd use, instead of the word sword, if they'd use the word knife, because he's really picturing a scalpel. <laughs> not a sword. You don't operate on people with swords, typically, okay? But the Holy Spirit does surgery in our spirit, in our souls, bringing us to the place where we can receive the blessing and the rest. Even in the midst of testing and torment, we will be wrestling. That's where the world steps back and says, what does that man, what does that woman, what does that child know that I don't know that allows them to respond this way? And again, as I keep referring, look at Jesus before Pilate. Look at Jesus before the Jewish leadership as they're unjustly trying him. And Pilate, who had tried many, many, many people, had lots of candidates for crucifixion before and before, is stunned at Jesus' calmness. He's not even replying to the accusations. 
What's the matter with you, man? Don't you know I have the right to crucify you? You would have no power to crucify me if it had not been given you from heaven. Whatever test I'm experiencing, dare I say, is heaven sent? That's not God saying there's no pain. That's not God saying there's no torment. But what he is saying is I have designed it specifically for you to bring you to a place you otherwise would not go, a place of divinely appointed rest, strength, praise, and worship. You don't want to know, know what really hurts Lucifer's ears? Is worship. Is worship, especially in the face of testing. For the word of God is living and powerful and is sharper than any scalpel, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart where you are reading the scripture and all of a sudden you see your own mindset there clarified and you go, oh, and so you are able to, with the Holy Spirit's help, to make the proper spiritual adjustment to your own thinking, your own outlook. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. Well, Lord, you just don't know. Stop it. <laughs> there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He sees things as they really are. Do we see, left to ourselves, do we see things as they really are? No, we don't. We have to be shown. And then in showing us, he also shows us the way to deal with it in his provision, in his presence, in his promise. We're coming to the Lord's table. What was the most overwhelming, we've already touched on this, what was the most overwhelming problem we ever had that any human being ever had? <clears throat> we are sinful creatures before a holy God. And we can't solve that problem. The scripture says even our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. God goes, oh, really? That's the best you could do? <laughs> no. We can't solve the problem, period. But he solved our problem for us. Jesus of Nazareth is God the Son, become a man. Fully God, fully man, drawing all of his humanity from Mary, but he is not half man, half God. He's fully God, fully man, joined together in one person, and he had to be in order to do what he did because when he went to the cross... He was seen by heaven as the stand-in for the entire human race. Not just one person, every person. He had to be who he was in order to have that level of glory, of importance in heaven's eyes. And as the illustration I've used before, you take a balance beam and you put the whole human race on one side of that balance beam with nothing on the other side, it goes clunk. But you put Jesus on the other side of that balance beam and it goes clunk 
because he outweighs the value of the whole human race in the nature of his person and therefore is able as the lamb of the perfect lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he is able to bear sin's penalty for all of us. And he did. It is finished. It is paid in full. That's the meaning of that expression. It is finished. It's paid in full. I paid off the sin debt of the human race. And all we have to do is accept the benefit. That's the gospel. That's the good news. As he Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe.